tonight as we continue our study of the epistle of 1 John. We look at verses 15 through 21, concluding the fourth chapter of this great epistle that has been designated the epistle of certainties and has also been called the epistle of love. And the section where we are studying now and have been for a week or so is indeed a section that would indicate why so many have designated this epistle as the epistle of love. We also see why it would be designated the epistle of certainties because of the absolute certainty or knowledge that John refers to time and again, that we can know him, that we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And that word know or some form of it is used many times in this epistle. It's one of the key words along with love. Know or some form 32 times, love 26 times. And while the word fellowship is only used three times, nonetheless fellowship is a very vital theme of this first epistle of John. And in the first chapter, as we have already studied, John gives us the wonderful characteristics of that fellowship. A fellowship that is not only a fellowship with one another, but most importantly, a fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. Our fellowship being horizontal and vertical, as John describes in the first chapter, as we have studied. And who has that fellowship? Who can say that he or she enjoys that fellowship? Well, in verse 15, with which we begin tonight, John writes, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. If God abides in us and we abide in God, then certainly we have fellowship with God. And John reminds us that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, has that fellowship. But as we look at that word confess, we need to make sure that we do not misapprehend what John is saying here in the word confession. We do not array one passage of Scripture against another, and therefore, since we know that Jesus said, as recorded in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And in Matthew seven twenty one through 23, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, if Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that is, not everyone who confesses me to be the Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father in heaven, then we have to know that John, by inspiration, when he writes here in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, that confession cannot be simply lip service or giving a verbal agreement to the fact that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. There are a great many people in our world tonight who will readily and quickly confess that they believe that Jesus Christ is just that, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Does that confession with the lips bring one into fellowship with God? Is that what John is saying here? He can't be, because if he is, he would be contradicting the Savior himself who said not everyone who says, and we could substitute the word confess there and do it no violence whatsoever, not everyone who confesses me, 
to be Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of the Father in heaven. There's no disharmony between what Jesus said there and what John writes here. This confession, this confession is in the aorist tense which indicates a one-time commitment with everything that that commitment involves. And so it involves more than simply giving lip service or confessing with the lips. It is a commitment with everything that is involved with that commitment or that confession. In other words, it is complete submission. It's a once-for-all act. Beyond that, we also have to understand and appreciate that John was dealing with a specific heresy, a heresy that we've mentioned more than once in this series, that Gnostic heresy, where there were those who were claiming that Jesus was not the Son of God, that He never came in the flesh. And therefore, John is countering that. And so within the context, the confession deals with that specific heresy, but it also involves more than simply saying or confessing with the lips that we believe Jesus to be the Son of God. And so it's that commitment. It is obedience. It is doing the will of God. It is confession that carries with it commitment. As Jesus in Matthew 10.32 is recorded as saying, Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven. Was Jesus simply saying there that confession with the lips alone will suffice in terms of salvation? No. It was understood there that that confession would be followed, obviously, by commitment. And remember those rulers of the synagogue in John 12, 42? Nevertheless, even of the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not, what? Confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Those rulers would not confess him. What did that mean? That they would not ever say that he was the Christ? No. They would not say it, but they would also not say it and then commit to him as his followers because they knew when they did, they would be put out of the synagogue. And so we need to understand the context in which this word confess is given and that it involves certainly more than simply giving lip service. Now notice something else in this verse. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Is John saying that deity literally dwells in a fleshly body? No, that's not a possibility. We are not deity, we're humanity. And deity does not literally dwell in a fleshly body, except for the Christ, obviously, and the incarnation of Christ when he came. But John is not affirming that God abides in you literally in your fleshly body, but that obviously he abides in you through a medium. What medium is that? Through his truth. When you confess and everything that involves that, you are confessing to what? The truth. The truth that God has revealed. And when you do, God abides in you through that truth. As we have often said, the Spirit abides or dwells in that same way. As we partake of the teaching of the Spirit, the Spirit dwells or influences our lives. And then he says, not only does God abide in the one who commits to him and continues to abide in him, but that God abides in him, but he in God. Do we literally abide in God any more than he literally abides in our fleshly body in a literal way? Well, of course not. 
To abide in him means to what? Obviously, to abide in his teaching. To abide in his doctrine. If you go with me to John chapter 15, where Jesus gave the teaching concerning himself as the true vine, you see that beautifully illustrated in the same way that John is expressing it here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Same idea as we're looking at here. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now notice verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Listen to it again. And my words abide in you. Jesus tells us there how it is that deity abides in us. Deity abides in us through the words of deity. And we abide in deity in that same way. And so Jesus' teaching there in John 15 illustrates beautifully for us the process by which we abide in God and by which God abides in us. And then in verse 17 or verse 16, rather, John writes, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Now, here's that beautiful subject of love as a part of the great treatise on love from verses 7 through verse 21, the last verse of this chapter. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. And then he repeats something here that he mentioned in, back in verse 8. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So now from verse 15 to verse 16, he ties abiding in God and God abiding in us to something that is absolutely essential in order for that process to be maintained. What is it? Love. Love is the key. And so he says here, we have known. It's perfect tense here. We have come to know is the idea, and we still know. We have come to know, and we still know what? The love that God has for us. How did we come to know, if we know tonight, the love that God has for us? Look at John chapter 17, verses 25 and 26. And there we find revealed how it is that we came to know if we're Christians tonight and have, and have partaken of that love and reciprocated with a love for the one who first loved us, as we'll look at in a verse in just a moment at verse 19. But in verse 25 of John 17, Jesus says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. There Jesus tells us how it is 
that we have known and believed the love that God has for us. It was revealed to us by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, the world has not known you, but I have known you. God and Christ are one in nature, and I have declared to them your name. They have known that you sent me. In other words, the process by which we came to know, if we know it tonight, the love of God is through the manifestation of God's only begotten Son and the love that He showed as He lived among men and as He sacrificed Himself supremely for us in that love, in that incomprehensible, matchless, depthless love, He has shown us the love of the Father and has shown us the love that we are to return through our obedience to Him and maintain that love and abide in that love. And so you can't abide in God, John tells us, unless you abide in love. And when you abide in that love that God revealed through Jesus Christ, then you abide in God, and God abides in you. That's what he says here, isn't it? And then he goes on to explain in verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this. In what? In what he has just written in verse 16. In the fact that we abide in love and therefore abide in God as we abide in love and God abides in us, love is perfected, brought to maturity in this process, in this relationship, in abiding in that love. God abides in us and we in Him, and in that abiding, we bring our love to perfection. What he explains here is that love is such an absolutely key quality in which we are to grow, which we are to bring to full maturity and perfection and love that others are to see in us. Love that our brothers and sisters are to see in us by our words and by our actions and by our attitudes. And love that the world is to see in us. As Seth prayed tonight, that others may see Christ in us, in, in the community around us. How do they see Christ in us? They see that Christ in us by the love that Christ brought to us, showed to us, demonstrated to us and the love that we must emulate. And that's the next part of this verse. After saying this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. What does he mean? As He is, so are we in this world. There's the emulation, the imitation of His love. As He, as John 17, 25 and 26 pointed out, showed us the love of God, as He made the Father known to us, as He made His name known to us and showed us the love of God, that the love with which you loved me, He says to the Father, may be in them and I in them. That's what He means by because as He is, so are we in this world. In other words, as He is and was as He lived among men, the perfect example of love, we're to imitate that perfect example of love. And others are to see that love in us. And go back to the middle part of the verse. That we may have boldness 
in the day of judgment. Who is it that will have boldness in the day of judgment? And that word boldness doesn't mean brashness and arrogance. Obviously, it means, it means confidence. We can approach the judgment day with confidence. Who can? The one who loves and understands and manifests that love for his brothers and sisters in Christ and for all mankind, but for that special love, obviously, that relationship that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are manifesting that love, if we're abiding in the love that God showed to us through Christ, if we're abiding in that love and thus abiding in God, we do not approach the day of judgment with fear and trepidation. We approach that day with boldness, meaning with confidence. And John reinforces that in verse 18. Notice it. There is no fear in love. When you are manifesting the kind of love that John is writing about here and enjoining upon every one of us, you do not live your life in fear. The Christian life is not a life lived in fear. It's a life lived in hope. It's a life because of the love that characterizes your life and the love that others can see in your life. You don't live in fear of the judgment. You don't live in fear of punishment. John does not say there's not much fear in love, does he? He doesn't say there's not much fear in love, as if there can be a little bit of fear in love. There's no fear in love. If you have got it right, he says, in effect, if you have fully understood and, uh, and have applied the love of God through Christ in your life, then there is no fear in that love. But what, what does occur? But perfect love, love that has been perfected in your imitation of the one who came and showed you the love of God in absolute perfection, Jesus Christ, when you have perfected that love, brought that love to maturity, and are manifesting that love in your life, then what? What does it do to fear? It literally throws it out. That's what the phrase cast out is. It's like a ball and throwing it out. The original word for ball in the original language in which the New Testament was written is balain. We get the, or to throw is balain. Does that sound like ball? Ball. Bole, balain, ball. It's like throwing a ball. And he says literally here it is to throw it out. That's what love does to fear. Love throws it out of your life because you don't live wondering whether or not you're going to hear well done, good and faithful servant. But who is it? that has that kind of anticipation. Not the one who's a nominal servant, but the one who truly loves, and that love is seen in the keeping of the commandments of God. And we can know that we are keeping them. Hereby we know that we know him, John said, 1 John 2, 3, that we keep his commandments. And in 1 John 5, 3, a verse we haven't gotten to yet, he says, His commandments are not burdensome. They're also understandable. They're also clear. And therefore, those who are keeping those commandments motivated by a mature love, a love that can be seen in your words, in your actions, 
in every aspect of your life does not live in fear. And then John further states, because fear involves torment. Isn't that right? As a child, did you ever hear your parents say, after you had done something to misbehave, as soon as I go get the belt, you're going to get it. I've, I've heard that a few times in my early life. And I remember on one occasion watching my daddy, who was quite upset with me, and rightfully so, telling me virtually that. When I get my belt, you're going to get it, in effect. And he couldn't find his belt. And it turned out he had it on the whole time, as I recall. <laughs> but it's like a child who's been told by a parent, I am going to punish you. Or your mother saying, when your daddy gets home, you are going to get it. How do you feel about waiting for daddy to come home when that's been said to you? You're not really thrilled about it, are you? Well, that's the very idea that John is conveying here. If you live your life looking toward the judgment in fear and trepidation and in doubt, then that's not the Christian life that God had in mind for us at all. That kind of fear involves torment. But he who fears, and if you have that kind of attitude, you have not been made perfect in love. But keep in mind that as we said earlier in this series, love and law are mutually inclusive. So it's not enough to say, well, yes, I feel, I feel like I'm very loving. I'm not that concerned about keeping all the commandments of God, but I am concerned about loving. No, you can't have it that way. Love and commandment keeping are mutually inclusive. In fact, love is the supreme motivation for keeping the commandments. And so John says, if you fear, you have not been made perfect in love. And then in verse 19, he says, we love him because he first loved us. And what a statement that is. Jesus came to this earth because he loved us before we loved him. Not because we loved him. He loved us first. And he loved us when we were anything but lovable. And because of that, that ought to intensify within us a reciprocal love and produce within us a love that is reciprocal and goes back to the one who first loved us. And how does it go back to him? How, how do we reciprocate it? Not by words alone, but by our actions. And so John says to us, therefore, in effect, if someone says, I love God. Oh, yes. John says we love him because he first loved us. And so uh, someone says, I love God. I do love God. But he hates his brother. He doesn't love God. Can't love God. He's a liar, John says. And then notice this, and we've mentioned this point before. For he who does not love his brother. Now, John just said, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, and now he says, for he who does not love his brother. Does he equate hating your brother with not loving your brother? Yes, and he's done it earlier in this epistle. In other words, hatred is equated with not loving. 
Hatred is equated with not loving. In other words, if you are not, if you are not actively loving, then you're basically characterized as hating. And that's a sobering thought. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You know, we generally are more closely endeared to those things or those individuals whom we can see and touch, those things that are tangible. And John recognizes that it seems, and says, if you can't love that which is right there with you, if you can't love your brother or your sister right there with you, then how can you love God whom you have not seen? If you can't love someone you can see, then how can you love God whom you have not seen? And why is it? Why is it that we are to love? Why is it we're to love our brother? Well, we're to love our brother because our brother is created in the image of God. But you know, we also should love our brother or sister because our brothers and sisters hopefully are demonstrating the qualities of God to us in their lives. Because if we're children of God, we demonstrate the qualities of God in our lives. And really, as I think about this, I understand and appreciate, I believe, that I, I have a responsibility to you and you have a responsibility to me as a brother or sister in Christ. Both of us have a responsibility to love each other, don't we? That's what John says. He's about to remind us that it's a commandment. It's not an option, but it's a commandment. So we both have an obligation to love each other, but both of us have another obligation too. And what is that? Both of us have an obligation to manifest and demonstrate the qualities of God in our lives so that it makes it much easier for me to love you and for you to love me. I have that responsibility toward you and you have that responsibility toward me. My responsibility, in part, is to be easy to love. <laughs> and I need to make myself as easy for you to love as I possibly can. And you're to do the same thing for me. And when we do that, then we do have the kind of relationship that God wants us to have. And when we don't do that, it's anything but pleasant, isn't it? Final verse, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Where do we have that commandment from him? Well, John 13, 34 and 35 is one of them. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. What kind of love? The kind of love, again, that Jesus manifested. Oh, yes, this is one of the greatest treatises on love in this section of this epistle found anywhere in Scripture. And how vitally important it is that we not only read and study it, 
but that we apply it to our lives. Have you applied it to your life in the sense of loving the one who first loved you to the extent that you will respond to that love by loving obedience to his will? By believing that Jesus is the Christ, by repenting of your sins, by confessing him to be the Christ, and by being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins? If not, we plead with you to do that this very night. There may not be another. And if you need to come home to your first love in repentance, confession of sin that has been public, therefore needs to be confessed in that same public manner, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you.